Hello and welcome to the TCDCU Weekly Meeting Podcast. This week, Mark Smith from City Church Dublin was talking to us about new beginnings. Thank you so much for your uh, invitation. I know that none of you made it personally, but on behalf of the committee, I'm here and I really appreciate being here. Uh, I've been given the topic new beginnings, and so we're going to uh, be thinking a little bit about that in just a few minutes. I want to, uh, however, begin by, uh, by reading some scripture. I'm going to read from, uh, from John's Gospel, John chapter 3. If you have a Bible on you, if you've got one on your phone or on a tablet or whatever, you can turn that up because uh, we will uh, be looking at this conversation that Jesus has. Uh, because actually it's a conversation all about new beginnings. And uh, it is, we're a Christian Union after all, so we need to, to get our, uh, our heads into the Bible. I'm going to be reading uh, John uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 21. It's a fascinating conversation with some famous verses in it. Uh, and as we delve into it, uh, I hope that it, uh, it opens up to you. Uh, let's read it together. Now, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sighing, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works be exposed. But everyone who does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God bless the reading of his word. New beginnings. 
uh, come obviously, don't they, with a with a range of emotions. Uh, you could be a fresher here tonight, and if so, you are welcome. There's something responsible for you. And uh, you could be starting in a new city, certainly at a new college, and there's a lot of mixed emotions going on. You can feel excitement, you can feel nervous, joyful, anticipation. You might feel a little bit of anxiety. You might have got your schedule. You'd be thinking, gosh, how am I going to uh, how am I going to cope with all the demands that are going to be placed on my time? I'm starting a little bit of fear. Well, I don't make friends, well, I don't get connected to people. Universities can be a very lonely place, can they? Not all new beginnings are positive ones. New beginnings come about and you still perhaps carry regret with you of things that you have done in the past. Your circumstances might have changed, the people that you're around might have changed, but you still carry those things. Not all new beginnings are positive. We want them to be, we want new beginnings, uh, and we plan, we seek them out in order to help them improve us. We want to be better, learn more, progress. No one wants a new beginning that actually leaves us getting worse off, or sadder, or even more alone. We want our new beginnings to mean something positive for us. But before too long, you realize that you are the same person with the same fears and the same anxieties and the same issues. You might be in a different situation, but you have carried them all with you. And so not to be totally depressing, but is a truly new beginning even possible? Regret comes because we know that sometimes things cannot be undone. Things cannot be unsaid. You cannot unring a bell. In this conversation that we just read, Nicodemus feels that. We'll see where he feels that. And in a way, he comes to Jesus and has a conversation with him. And he's a lot like us. Carrying a lot of questions, carrying a lot of doubt, carrying a lot of baggage, and bringing it to Jesus and saying, is a new beginning even possible? And so we look at this conversation in that sort of light. We want to just work through this conversation. It's a fascinating one. Nicodemus, in verse 1, we're told that he is a Pharisee. And so all, you know, all, the, all the good kind of Protestant pantomime people go, oh, boo, it's... Um, there's a bad guy, there's a bad guy here. Um, so we know he's a Pharisee, we know that he's respectable, you know, he's a fine upstanding member of the community, not all Pharisees went around with you know, horns and tail like they do now. Um, he was a respectable upstanding member of society, he was knowledgeable, uh, we told him that he's one of the, the ruler of the Jews, this is a particular title, he was one of the 70 in the Sanhedrin. It's one of the Jewish ruling councils. He was powerful as well. We're told later on in verse 10 when Jesus questions him and says, are you the teacher of Israel? Again, that's another title. He's basically saying, are you the theology lecturer for Israel? We don't know this. So he's a guy who knows his Bible. So Pharisee, respectable, knowledgeable, member of the ruling council, powerful, Theologically astute, knows his Bible, he's the teacher of Israel. He is a, a biblical expert. It's like the provost has just come to 
uh, to speak to Jesus. And we're told, aren't we, that when he comes, verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. That's nice of John to tell us what time of day it was. It's just good to get your mind. Why? Why are we told that it's at night? Well, people say, well, maybe, maybe Nicodemus is ashamed. Maybe he's like, you know, he's like a, like a black rider. He's got his hood off and he's kind of looking over his shoulder and getting in there, make sure that nobody sees him. But he's already, he goes on to say that we know, it's like he's been sent to be like, the seven of them goes, you go and talk to him. So it's not really ashamed. So why does he go at night? In the context of John's gospel, uh, these themes of light and dark and day and night, if you were to read through John, say if you do uncover John in your Bible studies and things like that, <coughs> That night and day and light and dark is a mega theme in John's gospel, and John plays about with it. Night symbolizes ignorance. Darkness is ignorance. He's coming in a, uh, in a veil of doubt, in a veil of unknowing, coming to Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that just a great life lesson in and of itself? That if you've got, uh, if you've got doubts and you've got questions, you come and have a conversation with Jesus. People find their doubts and their questions very comfortable and they rest in them rather than taking them to Jesus and having a conversation and seeing about getting some of those doubts and those questions answered. The Bible is not scared of people with doubt. It wants to move them from doubt to confidence and assurance. And so as Nicodemus comes at night, we know that he's coming with this kind of spiritual blindness, this veil. But he's claiming to see something, isn't he? Begins and I kind of think that Robert, that he's a little bit pompous. He's kind of rabbi. We know that you're a teacher sent from God. Uh, he's kind of it's a mark of respect for him, rabbi. But he's claiming to see something. He's claiming to see that Jesus is no mere faith healer. So he wants to know, you know, who are you? What is going on? And rather than Jesus answering the question of identity, who are you? Which is essentially the one being asked. Jesus replies like this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, no one can be born, no one can, uh, I'm sorry, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's been that field, isn't it? Jesus, who are you? Uh, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom. It's a little bit, this, doesn't this make Jesus look a little bit like, uh, like Confucius or the Buddha says, ah, yes. Uh, you know, it's like Rafiki. In the Lion King, there's a better you got that. Jesus sometimes gives these kind of left field answers. You think, what on earth is he on about here? But actually, he's being profoundly insightful, and this is one of those cases. He's not just being deliberately kind of mystical and oblique, he's directing Nicodemus in a certain direction. What is that? Well, Nicodemus is claiming to see something. He's claiming to know something. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Jesus' response to him is pointing out that you cannot really see anything unless you are born again, unless you have that new beginning. He says, you've got to start again, Nicodemus. And then Nicodemus responds, verse 4, with this great response to Nicodemus, said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? She would hate that. 
<laughs> What's Jake the Nicodemus saying? Is he being literal? Is he actually literally talking about re-entering the birth canal in order to come out again? No. What's Nicodemus's response? Yeah. Nicodemus is is working with Jesus kind of on his level, and he's starting to say something quite profound, something quite insightful. What Nicodemus is saying when he says, verse 4, how can this be? You cannot enter in a second time into your mother's womb and be born. He's saying, but you can't start again with Jesus, can you? There are some things that you cannot take back. How can you unring a bell? How can you take back those things that you've said? How can I take back those things that I've done? It goes back to the issue of regret, of guilt, of shame. He's saying, I can't start again, though, can I? How can this happen? And we all feel this, don't we? There's stuff that you wish you've done differently. There are moments that come to your mind even as I'm speaking, you think, man, I would, I would relive that and do that differently. I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have done that. The English poet, John Clare, says it like this, very pithy little uh, quote. He says, if, I, if life had a second edition, oh, how I would correct the proofs. How would you correct your proofs? We all would. You're fooling yourself to think that you wouldn't. And Nicodemus sees that. He's coming to Jesus and says, yeah, but there's stuff that you can't take back. He said, you might be a great miracle worker. You might be come from God. You might be really powerful. Heard about the wedding. You know, last chapter, lots of great wine. Good party trick. But you can't turn back time, Jesus. You can't turn back time. We can't take it back. And then Jesus' response begins to build this picture for Nicodemus about how exactly that is possible. How a new start for the believer in Jesus is possible. And he does so with three illustrations in, uh, in verse 5 uh, through 8. We have the illustration of... Um, so it's verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, look at that. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. These three, water and the Spirit, and then flesh giving birth to flesh, Spirit giving birth to Spirit, that's the second one, and the wind blowing where it wills, that's the third one. What they are designed to show us is that faith in Jesus transforms us utterly, from the inside out, that it comes only from God, and that it is that miraculous work of His Holy Spirit. Transforms us completely, comes only from God, and is a miraculous work of His Holy Spirit. The first one, this whole thing of being born of water and the Spirit, what does that mean? There are a few ways of looking at it. You look at it in a scientific kind of biological way and say, well, water and the spirit, it's talking about it's talking about physical birth. Don't think about it too much. I've been at present at the birth of one little person. It's really gross. There's water, amongst other things. Physical birth, 
and then born of the spirit, spiritual birth, conversion. So some people think it's physical birth and then spiritual birth. That's what he's talking about. You need to be a human, then you need to be a born again human. That's the first option. Second option, more, uh, more kind of high church, uh, people who are given to more uh, sacramental view of theology, if that isn't too very fair a term, basically say it's baptism. Be born of water, get baptized. It removes original sin, gets, gets you off and running on your spiritual journey, cleanses you from all of that muck that you inherited from your parents, and sends you off on the way. Born of water. And then you must be born of the Spirit again when you, when you own those promises for yourself and you start living out of that life. Then you're baptized. Both of those options are misguided. Both of those options are wrong. Because what I think Jesus has in mind here, bearing in mind, as we talked about, that Nicodemus is a Old Testament scholar. Jesus is referencing the Old Testament. Particularly, he's referencing the book of Ezekiel, which is a really funky book, actually. I recommend you read it. Uh, the Jews weren't allowed to read it until they were 30 years old. And because you're not, you can go ahead and read it now. <laughs> He's referencing Ezekiel 36. Let me read uh, a couple of verses from that and then explain why this matters. But you'll, you'll hear the language. This is God speaking. God speaking to his people. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you again to your own, own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to obey my rules. You hear the language, you hear the resonances, but being born of water and the Spirit, God says, I will cleanse you from your uncleanness, and I will put my Spirit in you. Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. You must be cleansed. You must be transformed from the inside out. That's the new birth that Jesus offers. A cleansing. From the guilt and shame that we carry into all of our new beginnings and a new heart to live out from. He goes on to put it another way. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. That this new beginning isn't brought about by any natural process. Flesh does not give birth to spirit. It only gives birth to flesh. If you truly want to see the kingdom of God, then you must be born again of the Spirit of God. So all of the, the things that we are tempted to trust in, perhaps the, the faith of our parents, or our religious pedigree, or our religious observance, or the fact that you wept when you were 15 years old, and you put your hand in the air, unless you were born of the Spirit of God, He says, thirdly, the wind blows where it wills. You don't see the wind. 
We see it's a fact, don't we? So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. For those who have had that cleansing and that heart surgery, you can see the effect. They're different people. For those of you in this room this, uh, this evening, you know that you're a different person. Especially if you're a relatively new Christian. If you know what it's like to live that former life. You know that you're different. And people start to see that you're different. John Newton, the, uh, the slave trader who, uh, who became a Christian and wrote Amazing Grace, uh, he also said it like this. He talked about the Christian life. He says, uh, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I one day will be. But I'm not what I was. Do you feel that? Spirit blows away our bills. We see its effects. It changes people. And so Jesus says, You must be born again. And so there's a question around, around trust that comes up. How do we know that Jesus is actually saying something that you can rely on? And so Nicodemus asks the question for us. He says in verse 9, How can these things be? Jesus answers him and said, Are you the teacher of Israel? And then you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus kind of answers Nicodemus on this level. Nicodemus comes going, We know. And Jesus responds saying, We know something too. He has the authority to speak about the new birth. He has the authority to bring about the new birth in the life of the believer. Why? Because he is the one sent from heaven. The new birth, in this sense, in Jesus' sense, when he says in verse 12, is an earthly thing. I told you earthly things and you don't, do not believe. How can I tell you heavenly things? He sits Nicodemus down. It's a mind-blowing, it's an electric moment in the conversation when you try and, and picture it in your mind's eye. Nicodemus, or Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, I could tell you what the cherubim sound like in the throne room of God. I can tell you what it is like to see 10,000 10, times 10,000 angels worshipping before the throne. You couldn't understand it. Your mind couldn't take it in. When I come talking to you about the new birth, take my word for it. I am the one who's come down from heaven to tell you about these things. That's where my authority comes from. And notice the title that he uses for himself. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it all the time in John's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel. Again, it's a title referring back to the Old Testament, to Daniel chapter 7, where this Son of Man is ushered into the throne room of God and receives an eternal kingdom. Jesus is saying, I am God's eternal king, and I have come to give you the new birth. I have come to remove your shame. I have come to give you a new beginning. Nicodemus is face to face with an authority claim. I am the one who was sent from heaven. You cannot 
in your reading of the Gospels, conclude that Jesus was a mere man, an entertaining orator, faith healer, or a winsome debater. Those options are not left open to you. Either you can reject him, as C.S. Lewis who is a liar, a lunatic, or you can submit to him as Lord. Nicodemus is face to face with an authority claim. The one option that is never open to us is apathy. I'd encourage you, all of you who perhaps sit in this room tonight and think, ah, I can take a leave, Jesus. I like some of the things he got to say, some of the stuff just kind of bothers me, kind of triggers me. I don't feel safe when he says some of those things. Apathy is not an appropriate response when you are faced with the Son of Man. So how do we get this, this new beginning? Staying on topic. How do we get this new beginning? Verses 14 and 15 sound utterly bizarre to our ears, don't they? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This, this, this is very strange to us, but not ultimately to Nicodemus. You could, to go back, you would read the story in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 24, and you'd read the story about the, about the people of Israel in the wilderness, and the people of Israel are doing what they do best. They're rebelling and bowing down to idols, sleeping with people they shouldn't sleep with, and all the things that the people of Israel used to do. And they're, they're whining. And they're worshipping false gods. And so God, in response, sends snakes into the camp. When you do that, wouldn't you want to do that to people who just whine all the time? You put, put a snake in their head. So God does. God sends snakes into the camp to bite all the people. And all the people are, 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 are dying of these snake bites. And they're, they're crying out to Moses, saying, Will you help us? And Moses goes to God. And says all the people are dying, and God says, "Yeah, because they're because they're wicked." But tell you what, Moses, make a bronze snake, you put it up on a pole, and anyone who looks at the snake will be healed. Anyone who looks at the bronze serpent that you put up on the pole will be saved. And Jesus says, "I'm like that." You see, we, collectively, as humanity, are a treacherous brood. We're all given to our idols, idol gods, gods of approval, gods of comfort, of success, of sex, of money, power. We might not buy bow down to a little carved wooden image. But we all have the things that captivate our heart. And idolatry, like in Numbers 24, it always leads to death. It always leads to death. And what Jesus is saying is, I am God's provision for your life, for your salvation. So he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. 
What's he referring to? He's referring to the cross. Just as the serpent was on a pole, so the Son of Man will be strung out on a Roman gibbet, lifted up. Augustine summarized it like this. He said the Jews look to the serpent to be freed from serpents, and we look to the death of Christ to be delivered from death. Can't get any better than that. The Jews look to the serpent to be freed from serpents, and we look to the death of Christ to be freed from death. And then we get to the most famous verse in all of the Bible, don't we? Why was Jesus sent? Why was Jesus sent to give all those that will come to him this new beginning, this new birth? Because God so loved the world. And you think you know what that's about. But you don't. Because in John's Gospel, the world, that word, the world, it's not a geographical term. It's a moral term. If you flick back to the prologue, you'll read about the world. The world are the people who reject God. The world are the people who are arrayed in enmity. They build their forces together. They want to do battle with God. They want to say, get out of my face, God. I don't want anything to do with you. I would rather live my own way. Thank you very much. That's the world. The world is the treacherous mess. And God loves it. What's so amazing about God's love in John 3.16 that you see plastered over calendars with waterfalls and on the backs of cars and other nonsense like that. What's so amazing about God's love for the world? It's not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. And God loves it. He loves it. And so he invites all of us to experience this new beginning. And with this, I will finish, because we have this final image. This image of the light. Jesus begins, he begins by saying that, that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. The law was already condemning people, already reminding people of their guilt and their shame. Some of you are profoundly aware of your guilt and your shame. Jesus came to save it, to cleanse you from it, to give you a new heart. And he invites you, therefore, into the light that's the final image. In verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. It can be very hard to set out in this new beginning that Jesus offers because it means coming into the light. That can be very exposing. Isn't that just what he says? That some people don't want to come into the light lest their works should be exposed. There are things that you carry with you that you would rather that other people don't know. Things that you want to keep private. And so you stay in the darkness. 
Jesus invites you into the light. And let me tell you, let me finish why that's a good thing. It is a good thing. Because when you step into the light, you discover two things. First, you look at yourself and you see that you're actually clean. All of that sin that has defiled you, the sin that you have done, and the sin that's been done against you, has been made clean by the blood of Jesus. You step into the light and you can finally say, oh, I'm made clean. That's the first thing you see. The second thing you see is you step into the light and you look to either side of you and you see that everybody else is there anyway. Everybody else is there with their issues and their crap. And they've been made clean by the blood of Jesus too. It's remarkably liberating. It means that you don't have to, uh, to fear covering yourself up. I fear not being vulnerable because everybody else has their stuff to deal with. So we all journey together. The gospel is an amazing leveler because it puts everybody on the same plane before the foot of the cross. We are more sinful than we could possibly imagine. And yet more loved than we have, could ever dare dream. The gospel is a leveler. So don't be scared about coming into the light. Don't be scared about coming into the light either with Jesus for the first time, or as you start in college again, maybe a kind of a kind of a rededication, a kind of okay, things weren't going so well. The summer's always a terrible time for people spiritually. I knew that growing up. You're just in a spiritual wasteland because you're out of your normal rhythms. You're out of your normal routine of going to church and doing things like that. And, you know, Netflix won't watch itself. But so many people start September at such a dreadfully low ebb, spiritually speaking. And you could be thinking, how can I possibly come back to Jesus again? He invites you into the light. And do not be scared about coming into the light with one another. Is, uh, reading about um, uh, about Celtic spirituality just this afternoon, just because I, that's the kind of thing that I do. That's the kind of thing that people pay me for. And it's mad. I talk about the idea of soul friends, people that you're truly honest with. Those are the sweetest friendships in all the world. People that you can be known by. People that you can know. People that see you for who you really are with all of the ravages of the fall that's wrought in your life and don't turn away. I embrace you. I love those friendships. Those are my dearest friends. Because I have a lot. Don't be scared about coming into the light. Jesus invites you. He cleanses you. He gives you a new heart. He makes it possible. That's the new beginning that really matters. That's the new beginning that I would encourage you towards tonight. I've gone way over time. Thanks for listening to the TCD CU Weekly Meeting Podcast. If you want to know more about us and what we do, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our website, tcdcu.com.